Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. Today is Thursday, the 7th of December, and my guest today is Shalom Lipner. Shalom, thank you for joining us. Happy to be with you, Richard. Shalom is a non-resident senior fellow for Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council and really brings a wealth of experience for having worked previously for 25 years in the Prime Minister's office, serving as an advisor to seven consecutive Prime Ministers. So it's a real honour to have you back with us today. So Shalom, I wonder if we could start off just kind of, we're now marking 60 days of this conflict. I wonder if you could sum up and give us a, uh, a feeling for the atmosphere here in Israel. Uh, hi, Richard. I think I think Israelis are mostly are mostly anxious at this point. I think they are, you know, they're anxious about what happens to the fate of the hostages that are being held in Gaza right now. Um, there's still almost 150 of them there. They're anxious about rising casualty counts of Israelis of Palestinians, um, and they're anxious to see that the you know that the stated objectives of the of the war, as outlined by the government, are actually achieved, and that and that the government is that the IDF is actually able to to restore security to the parts of country the country that were under threat. Um, at the same time, I would also say I think that you know people are determined. I think that that's also you know part of what's happening right now. Um, they're determined to see the campaign through, um, you know, and to make sure you know that they do their part to make sure that these uh, that these objectives are achieved. I think that um, you know that that the if that's if that's not doesn't happen otherwise, I think Israel's security predicament and its regional standing writ large, I think you know become untenable for the country. So you know, I think those are some of the feelings that you experience right now if you walk the streets. And what do you think about the cost of the uh, of fatalities, both on the Israeli and Palestinian side? How do you think that weighs in on the Israeli society? Well, I mean, look, Israel's a very small country. Uh, I don't think I, you, I'm sure yourself have experienced this. I've experienced this. There's, there's nobody that I know in this country who hasn't been affected personally by what's happened here. Um, you know, right. people have have uh, have buried family members. People know personally families of hostages. Um, people who have evacuated from different parts of the country. So I mean, it's very, very personal. Um, country country has a long history of uh, hypersensitivity um, on is, on issues of, of hostages, of you know hostages that have been taken in the past, and 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 uh, pressure on the government to to you know engineer their release. Um, so those things all come into play, and I think that you know notwithstanding maybe impressions that people have outside of you know, outside of Israel, I think Israelis are also very much, you know, disturbed by the effects of the war in Gaza. Nobody nobody wants, um, you know, innocent civilians involved in this. You know, certainly it doesn't uh, doesn't help the 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 uh, accomplishment of uh, of actual objectives in terms of restoring security to Israel. In fact, you know, conceivably it turns people away from, you know, in the other direction and being less conciliatory. Um, and, and just overall, I don't, you know, this is, this is not, you know, this is not about any sort of revenge if you talk to Israelis by and large, I mean, this is really just a question of of having been caught in such a, an impossible situation that required a response of this magnitude to restore the security that was, you know, that was taken away on October 7th. Absolutely. And um, you mentioned kind of support for the stated objectives. Uh, one of the goals, of course, is to destroy Hamas's uh, um, infrastructure and leadership. Um, do you think this is a, like a realistic policy objective that can be achieved? Well, it's certainly a complex one. I think that, you know, the expansive rhetoric notwithstanding and, and taking into account technical issues of capacity and of duration, I think I think Israel does have a, an opportunity here to succeed in, in conceivably in dealing a fatal blow to the Hamas infrastructure, right? you know, military infrastructure, governance infrastructure. Um, 
But you know, as as, as you know, implied in the question, I think that you know, de- sort of destroying the ideological threat that that Hamas represents to Israel's welfare—that's an entirely different proposition. Um, I would argue that Israeli strategists recognize that. I think that's why their efforts have been focused on the you know the more tangible things that we've talked about in terms of you know, taking apart the infrastructure to restore security, to make sure that people can move back to their homes safely, um, to bring hostages back home. I think those are those are certainly much more attainable objectives. Um, you know, obviously people will define them differently, but I think those are, you know, much more in the range of of, of the achievable than maybe, you know, some of the longer term uh, philosophical things that are in play here. And I mean, Israel has stated that they don't want to put a time limit on this, on, on this operation. Um, but obviously, there we're conscious about the other, the kind of the parallel timing, both of the military campaign and of the uh, the diplomatic uh, um, space and, and time that uh, the international community and primarily the U.S. will give Israel. Do you think? Uh, do you think U.S. Um, are supportive enough to give Israel the requisite time? Well, t- you know, time is certainly a critical factor here, as you've indicated. I think that we've seen. Israeli spokesmen consistently since the beginning of the campaign talk about needing months to complete their tasks in Gaza. Um, you know, that that messaging hasn't wavered. And uh, and the and the U.S. ostensibly has been squarely on, you know, in support, has been there on Israel's side in support of those objectives. Again, you know, to re- bring the hostages back to Israel, to dismantle Hamas, however we define that. That's a conversation we started having before. Um, you know, and 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 restoring long term long term security to that theater. So you know, we certainly have on that level everybody being lined up on the same side. Um, the uh, with the, I would also add, of course, you know, the uh, in the American context, and these are important qualifications that you know that Israel does everything that it can possibly do to limit the impact on non combatants and to increase the flow of humanitarian aid. Um, I think the evidence suggests that Israel has tried to comply with those things. We've heard administration spokesmen saying that Israel's receptive to those requests. Um, but uh, but it's clear, obviously, at the same time that you know there are there are domestic and international pressures on the White House to draw the fighting down to a close. And uh, and it stands to reason the IDF doesn't have unlimited time at its disposal to you know to continue the operation. I think we could probably suggest or, or come to the conclusion that what seems to be a resolute push right now to result to uh, accelerate the pace of progress in Gaza is probably at least partially in response to the fact that that people are sensitive to the, you know, to the amount of time that maybe that may be remaining to continue at this at this speed at this pace at this scope, um, and maybe you know maybe that. Uh, I think I think at all times the IDF will be looking to try and lock in whatever gains it can possibly achieve up to the point whenever that will come that people might pull the plug on the operation. Right. If we can pan out for a second, just kind of and see the, this uh, this conflict in the context of uh, of broader Israel-U.S. relations, uh, and we were conscious of the kind of of the pressure that the president faced faces from the left wing of his own Democratic Party. But how would you assess the overall uh, Israel-US relations at this time? Well, certainly through the prism of the operation, which is, you know, sucking up most of the air in the room. I mean, coordination is tight. It's ongoing. There's been a steady stream of, of senior American officials coming through Israel. They, uh, they including the Secretary of State, they've, they've participated in meetings of the War Cabinet. They continue to consult with principals. Um, and and air differences when they exist. You know, again, I think that we've heard the administration say that Israel's tried to be receptive to the concerns that they've put on the table, and there does seem to be on you know on the um, on the umbrella level 
an identification with Israel's objectives in terms of the war. I mean, you know, the president has been staunchly uh, on Israel's side in terms of uh, highlighting the threat that uh, that Hamas has represented to Israel's security. Um, you know, lately we've heard him weigh in on the uh, on the uh, horrible treatment, shall we say, to which the uh, hostages were were subjected in Gaza. Um, you know, so so I think that you know we've not seen that waiver. Um, and I would say, for, certainly with my personal interactions with officials on both sides in Washington and in Jerusalem, I think there's general satisfaction with the working model. Um, if even, you know, we don't, there isn't necessarily, maybe there won't be, but at least at this point, we certainly don't have consensus on all the issues that are still outstanding. I think one example of that, of course, is the, you know, the conversation on what a day after in a post-Hamas Gaza could look like. And those conversations are still ongoing. I mean, I think we understand, from what we, we've been able to ascertain, I think that there's been some reluctance till now on the part of the Israeli government to engage in those conversations. Um, some reasons for some for sometimes for substantive reasons, sometimes for just political reasons. I think we we might uh, come to the conclusion, but uh, but at least of late, the signs seem to be indicating that those conversations are happening as well. You know, opposite opposite the United States, and not maybe only you know within Israeli government circles internally. So I, I want to come back to, uh, to to the the questions of the day after uh, shortly, um, but just kind of also within the international diplomatic framework, what's been your your view? We heard the prime minister commit to uh, to say as part of the, uh, the the deal to release the hostages, the Red Cross would have access, um, but we haven't we haven't seen that happen as far as we as far as we know. But what's been your impression of kind of the Israel's re reaction or or in interrelationship between the other international bodies like the Red Cross and the UN and what can we what can we expect to see there? Well, I mean I think I think we've seen a heightened level of disappointment, shall we call it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. certainly on that issue as you as you raise now of uh, you know being able to visit the hostages or to you know to bring them uh to bring the medicines and issues like that. You know, there's obviously a huge degree of concern as well for their fate. Um they continue, the hostage issue continues to make huge headlines. There's massive pressure on the government to, to engineer any possible trade to bring them back. The government has said that they are receptive to that and that they've not left any stone unturned in the in the pursuit of that goal. Um, and obviously, you know, the hope would be that that internally international agencies can engage more, more actively on that issue to be able to, you know, to respond to that humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, maybe of late we've seen some, you know, we've there have been mess places now that they seem to be seem to be making a more concerted effort on that on that score. We haven't seen the results of it yet. Um, and uh, and in terms of actual and actual release, I believe the prime minister also said this week that that in in speaking to the hostage families that the uh, that the uh, he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't perceive that there there could there would be a, another window to to affect some sort of trade to bring them back home to Israel conceivably maybe for, for another month. Um, I believe it was the time frame he indicated. Um, and and yet at the same time, I mean, I, I guess one would assume that that's also dependent on the on the pace of progress again of, of the IDF in Gaza to the extent that the government has been very clear that the two issues are intertwined and that they are not that they are not contradictory one to the other in the sense that the increasing degree to which under Hamas leadership and Gaza is under pressure would, you know, facilitate or would make them all that much more interested in trying to facilitate some sort of hostage deal to, to uh, try and alleviate some of that pressure. So, you know, those issues are all intertwined and, uh, you know, and, and, and we'll, you know, stay at the top of the, at the top of the priority list for the coming weeks and months, presumably. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I could change tack for a moment, I mean, and you, just a funny because you talk about the priorities up until kind of the October the seventh. The the biggest challenge that Israel was facing on a security challenge was really the threat of a of a nuclear Iran and the uh, and the potential uh, creep out or or breakout. Um, with the international community so focused on uh, on Gaza right now. What's what's your assessment of what's going on um, on the on the Iranian front um, and and how they're progressing and and kind of are there can can uh, Israel and and the US kind of walk and chew gum at the same time and monitor that issue sufficiently in the context of this ongoing war? Well, I mean, I, we've we've certainly seen you know, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, has uh, has reported fairly consistently that uh, you know that Iran's pursuit of a we uh, nuclear weapons capability seems to continue unabated. Um, you know, sometimes quicker, sometimes slower. But, uh, you know, to the extent that that's true, breakout is obviously continues to be a very real concern. I think that it dovetails in the in the context of the current conflict in Israel, you know, Iran's influence through support for Hamas and Gaza, through support for Hezbollah and Lebanon, um, and even their involvement with the Houthis in, in Yemen, who have taken a late to launch ballistic missiles on Israel and interrupt global shipping lanes, trying to, you know, hunt down Israeli Israeli ships, Israeli flagged ships. So you know, it makes it makes the Iranian problem all that more acute in the Israeli context as far as Israel's long-term security is concerned. I think that the um, you know the presence of those U.S. naval carrier groups in the region uh, comes directly to try and and deter a potential escalation that could involve Iran even more directly um, than we've seen before in the conflict over here. So you know, obviously that's that's an issue that continues to be on everybody's radar. I think you're you're correct that you know it is hard to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and that could be something that Iran, you know, would exploit. Um, we've seen, um, you know, th th there seem to be continue, you know, a stream of statements or, or insinuations, however you call them, coming out of coming out of Tehran, suggesting, you know, that they, that they're they don't want to be an active partner to this, that they don't want that escalation. Um, but you know, again, we see sometimes we see counterintuitive signs in that respect, or maybe intuitive signs. Um, and and you know the uh, the possibility the potential for miscalculations for things that could could you know spiral out of control control is always there so you know that 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 whole nuclear piece you know adds another another level of concern and uh, you know and I guess the international community would be well advised not to take its eye off that ball even though it's looking at other things maybe more uh, more acutely right now. Yeah, absolutely. Do you buy the kind of the, the conventional thinking at the moment that uh, that it's not for those reasons that uh, it's not in Iran's interest to go for a, a wider kind of regional uh, conflagration here and keep it limited to the Gaza Strip? Or do you think there is still kind of palpable concern that this could still escalate? Well, I mean, again, on the level of miscalculation, that's always ever, you know, that's ever present in terms of whether or not there'd be a conscious decision to do that. I mean, you know, the Iranians, just like everybody else, are are watching the situation unfold. Um, I think that part of why the the October seventh attack happened in the first place was because you know Hamas had prepared for this, and they had you know they had detected what they what they identified as an opportunity to to be able to to launch that kind of attack. So I don't think you know, I don't think the Iranians are asleep at the wheel. I think they're watching as well to see how things play out. Um, you know, they would be very happy to sort of advance the advance the interests of their you know their proxies of their axis in the region. Um, so I don't I don't think we can ever write you know we can never we can ever necessarily write that you know, write that off write that off as a possibility I, I you know I, I can't say that today you know the, there are indications to suggest that they would not necessarily want that to happen um, but uh, but Hezbollah in Lebanon for instance who's like you know direct uh, you know direct uh, 
directly linked to the IRGC, are uh, are, are very active. There are, there are conversations, I understand, through Washington to try and institute some sort of uh, equilibrium, reinstitute some sort of equilibrium on Israel's northern border with that. You know, it's a question how that plays out. But, um, you know, but, but Iran has not hesitated to... Uh, Know, to use Hezbollah when they thought it was to their to their you know broader interest, that could happen again. I think we just you know we're going to have to keep on watching that. I don't think I don't think anybody can make a definitive uh, determination right now that you know, Iran doesn't want this to escalate and that it will not escalate. Um, there's reason to believe that might be the case, but but there there you know indicators sometimes going in the other direction as well. Yeah, but just on that on, on those, those diplomatic efforts, I mean, the, you know, the, from the Israeli domestic concern is kind of how can one reassure the residents that have been evacuated from those northern communities to feel to feel safe and 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 return. The idea of kind of of reaching an understanding with the Lebanese government and uh, and being able to reinforce 1701 and have Hezbollah removed from the border, you know, it, it hasn't happened for for 17 years. Is there any sense? Do you get any sense of optimism that uh, that diplomacy can prevail there? I mean, personally, I, I can't say that I have a sense of optimism. I haven't been directly involved in the conversations to know how well they are or are not proceeding. You know, clearly there are people that are that are engaging heavily to make sure that that comes about. I think you're, you know in the, the you know the implication of your question, not just an implication, that the fact that that there is 1701 and it has not been enforced does not does not bode well for the future, where all of a sudden that calculus necessarily changes. I think it will continue to be a problem, mm. um, but maybe you know maybe the sort of the the uh, the magnitude of the current situation, you know maybe conceivably it would be a a moment when people will reconsider and say you know that finding some way to be able to to agree on those terms now might reinject a degree of stability to a region that's that's grossly unstable. So. You know, maybe maybe there's hope for that, but as as in all these agreements in the past, I mean, you know, it'll be a question of you know, not 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 trust and verify, and uh, and you know, to keep your finger on that pulse to see if if that actually materializes or not. Um, you know, hopefully, as you say, you know, from an Israeli perspective, the hope is that Hezbollah will sort of retreat north of the Litani and like uh, sort of dismantle its forward positions on that and allow people to return to their homes with a degree of security to the north of Israel. I mean, right now, from from all the fronts together, there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis still displaced from their homes as a result of the fighting. Um, and they you know, are sitting heavily on the Israeli government as well to say that you know they have to restore a modicum of security before they would be willing to go back home. So that that certainly weighs heavily on the agenda of the Israeli government as well. And, you know, I'm sure they're pursuing some sort of arrangement that would allow that to happen. Sure, let's let's hope. Um, let me just take you back to Gaza now and we discussed kind of the, 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 the ideas of the day after. We know that Prime Minister Netanyahu has so far refused to, uh, to consider the, uh, the Palestinian Authority as a legitimate uh, successor to, to to, uh, to Hamas there, and partly for the reason that he'll point to the corruption, um, the lawfare that they carry out against Israel and international uh, um, institutions, the incentivizing of terrorism through through paper slay, and the ongoing incitement uh, within within Palestinian media and uh, and uh, school curriculum. Um, however, on the other side, they're also the Palestinian Authority still maintains a level of uh, security coordination with Israeli forces in the West Bank. And uh, and and that is seen long-term as, as the path forward to, to reaching those understandings, incrementally on the ground. But as someone that's advised um, prime ministers in the past, what would you say, what would you be advising the prime minister now in terms of the day after policy? 
I think I think the the problem in the situation right now is that everybody agrees there are not really very many good options. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, we may end up with what people would consider as the least bad option. Um, the talk we have now, you know, is um, I believe that you know so you refer to it as a revitalized Palestinian authority. Um, you know, presumably that would include enhanced capacity, a willingness to engage, like you say, you know, pieces of which we see in the West Bank in terms of security co cooperation, um, and and you know, in the context of like you said, pay, pay for slay, the uh, you know. Uh, demonstration of intolerance, shall we say, for vilification of Israel. I think that the, you know, those are the circumstances people are contemplating, which will be necessary for the PA to ever succeed in governing Gaza and restoring security to that border. Um, you know, obviously there's there's a uh, no no uh, lack of concern that you know if it's not done right, it could end up as in 2007 when when you know the PA was booted from Gaza by by Hamas. So I mean, there's you know it's a it's a pretty tenuous uh, reality to begin with down there. Um, it may prove too too tall in order to deliver, you know. Which, which again, talking about the least bad of options. I mean, I think I think that people are looking at that because I mean, certainly you know the Americans have stated um, that the you know that one of their one of their uh, conditions for moving forward on this is that the Palestinian you know Palestinian presence is is re, you know, is reinstituted in charge of Gaza. Prime Minister hasn't ruled it out again, but he's like talking about the conditions under which that could work, and. At the same time, you know, it seems that most of the other options that are, I wouldn't even say being debated, but there may be, you know, people are, are thinking about or ruminating about are also, you know, are not are not far from perfect either. I think that, uh, you know, the uh, discussion of an international presence is is uh, is flawed as well. I don't think that, uh, you know, we've seen this, we talked about Lebanon, you know, we've seen sometimes how, you know, Unifil would turn tail when things got difficult. I don't think I don't think countries are looking to step into a situation in Gaza right now that that's that you know that that's unstable to that degree. I don't think that uh, you know the the first sign the first sign of danger. I think that the indicate you know the inclination would be able to pull those forces out and get them out of the way. Um, so you know certainly from Israel's perspective, there's a a degree of uh, disbelief in the in the ability or the willingness of other partners to step in and do that job themselves. I think that notwithstanding certain strands of political discourse in Israel, which would like to be back in Gaza long term, I think the consensus is squarely behind not doing that. Um, but the way to manage that process is is still up in the air. I think that um, it's not improbable that at least for the interim period, we see an IDF presence in place after the fighting has stopped. Um, I'm not sure that that's a result that everybody wants. I'm sure these, you know, the Israelis will have mixed feelings about it as well. But um, you know it's possible that until all the details are ironed out of what either a revitalized PA or some other you know array of forces that would step in there to fill that vacuum would look like, you know that that might be the most the default option at least for the immediate term. Um, in the given the absence of of you know any off the shelf available options right now, they can just sort of step in and get that job done in an adequate way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting this because we kind of cancel out all the you said that they're all, all the bad options. That if the uh, if if the PA isn't fit for purpose, I don't see anyone from the international community kind of lining up desperate to insert themselves. And you say there's kind of will be compounded by the fact that Israel will insist, at least in the uh, short to medium term, of the uh, the ability to to react and to continue the fighting in another form, albeit not with a permanent middle three presence. I'm just thinking out loud if there are any other alternative models that, uh, that that could be that could be considered or that could be could be viable. Well, I mean 
I, I, I think I think looking at the two axes involved here, like one is you know sort of like the the players, and the other is the time frame, right? I mean, over time, maybe another model could be evolved, or could evolve. Um, you know, certainly in the immediate term, in terms of things that are that are that are ready at hand, if not you know fully germinated. Again, you know, like what extent would Israel continue to be involved? What an internet, what sort of international presence could be acceptable to look to the people you know that are in Gaza to to you know to Israel to make sure that it's stood down. Um, you know, again, there, there are there are not a lot of uh, you know ready ready customers right now to step in and fulfill that role. I think those those conversations are ongoing. Um, people are you know looking at multiple models for things that could work. But I it's, it's I mean from from my own part, it's hard to point a finger on a specific model and say that this is the winner right now. Um, you know, it could, it could ultimately end up being some sort of hybrid involves a lot of those elements. You know, it does have a Palestinian element of some sort. It does have some sort of Israeli involvement. Um, there's there's been uh, certainly you know heightened consideration of a role for I guess what we could call Abraham Accord states you know countries within mm -hmm. the region that have relationships with Palestinians that are also you know in ongoing dialogue with Israel that that Israel could countenance as you know as as partners to an agreement like that um, but I think the, my sense is those conversations are early on and then there are a lot of a lot of drawbacks and disadvantages to going down those routes as well so you know I think it's difficult at this point to put a put a finger on a specific option. Um, that that's you know that that's ready to be implemented as soon as the fighting stops. Yeah, I hear you. Um, if we could change tack. I'd love to get your assessment on some domestic internal Israeli political issues. Um, the first one is just your 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 assessment after the after this fighting is over. Um, can can Netanyahu survive? Can he uh, can he rebuild rebuild trust and regain a a mandate in the future? I've written that um, that I think Israelis are are no less consumed with their own country's day after than they are with Gaza's day after. Um, it, there are a lot of big questions looming. I think that it's uh, there 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 is an overall expectation that the higher ups will will take will be forced to if they don't volunteer to to take responsibility for the October seventh debacle and hand in resignations. Um, I think that. You know, politics to the extent that it's actually taken a relative pause now during the fighting will be back in full swing. Um, in terms of the fate of the principles on this, I think that I think elections after the fighting stops, and there's, that's a, a separate and complex conversation. What that date actually looks like, I mean, you know, who who will be able to get up and say now, you know, business as usual. But I think yeah. you know, once we reach that determination, elections are a foregone conclusion almost. I mean, maybe sometime in the spring already. Um, and, you know, voters will have their chance to reshuffle the deck again. And uh, I think there'll be new candidates in the mix, which will, you know, make it even more complex. Um, look, I mean, Netanyahu will be in, will, will be, is already fighting the political fight of his life in this respect. I think that, uh, you know, the polling is very much not smiling on him right now. Um, I think that uh, he must clearly be thinking that, to the extent that the that the campaign goes well, maybe that will offer an opportunity for for rehabilitation. You know, people will be focused less on how this started and the fact that the IDF was, you know, so so, you know, overwhelmingly unprepared for this eventuality. Um, you know, more focused on maybe what could be what you know they would like to be able to define as the successes of that campaign after the fact. You know, and then maybe people will take a renewed look at at you know his at his leadership. I think that. Uh, it, it'll be a tough sell, not only because of the 
just the, the overall magnitude, again, of the impact that October 7th happened, but again, you know, against the backdrop of the previous year, when the country was basically engaged in this, you know, self-immolation over judicial reform and related issues, um, and sort of the inherent, you know, that groundswell of, of you know, dissatisfaction of protests going on in the streets. I think that there's, you know, the, the obvious connection between the two being that people will say that part of the reason Israel was unprepared and that the, you know, that the enemy identified an opportunity to launch an offensive like this was because, as we discussed in the Iranian context, with other people being busy, you know, with bandwidth, I think that, you know, Israelis were preoccupied as well, um, sort of transmitting some sort of sign, distress signal of weakness, and it was an opportunity to be able to to uh, to launch an attack on a time when the country was d divided internally so deeply. Um, luckily for Israel's sake, and as you know, people had largely predicted. You know, when the when the chips were down, people all reported for duty, and and you know, there's been uh, there've been overwhelmingly uh, high high rates of people showing up for service for the for reserve for reserve duty right now. So people are very much engaged, um, but. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're hearing this all the time, whether or not it's time to discuss politics in parallel to the fighting, whether or not it should be put in abeyance until a later date. I don't think it's possible to put a cap on it entirely. Um, and, uh, and and clearly, you know, I, I think that while there is a consensus that transcends the political divide about the necessity of this campaign after October 7th and, you know, and, and, and you know, Hamas has continued uh continue threats to to actually have future October 7th, you know, and it kept moving down the road. So I don't think there's I don't think there's division over the actual campaign itself. But I think that, you know, there are elements in in, in the prime minister's performance and conduct which people are, you know, are have identified as uh as more, shall we say, more political um as opposed to more focused on actually on actually uh directing the campaign itself. I mean we're we're seeing we're seeing discussion right now of uh the new of the next budget coming up. People have differences over that as well. So so it will be hot and he will have to fend off a challenge which uh which um, you know he very well may not survive. Mm. I mean there's other speculation I just want to get your take on it on how how reasonable or, or feasible it is. The idea of uh, instead of going to an election, you could have a constructive vote of no confidence in the Knesset and potentially get rebels from the Likud party that are that are disenamored with with his with his leadership that could lead to a different prime minister potentially even from the Likud party replacing this now. Do you think that is that fancy politics or or uh, a, a viable scenario? It's certainly something that's on the books, and it's been discussed. You know, historically, people would point to that. You know, with a with a small cohort of defectors that could be engineered, sort of inherent impetus of sitting parliamentarians to go down that road because then it avoids it avoids um, uh, um, you know sort of sending the current sending the current parliaments back the parliamentarians back to the polls. You can just sort of dissolve parliament and you know put a new government in place and. It should be something that those that are actually sitting there today would favor because it would allow them to escape the you know the wrath of the voters, especially in a time mm. like this, so fraught. Having said that, um, that course of action, the constructive, the constructive uh, non-confidence per se, the catch, the biggest catch there is it involves actually naming a particular individual who would step into that role. Um, so the, the the issue becomes one of the issues will become that even if you could line up enough votes for people to say this particular government should be brought down, they would also have to reach a consensus on who the actual successor would be, um, which, you know, you've got all kinds of different factions within the opposition pulling in different directions. And even more so in a scenario like that, which we predicated on defections of people from the prime minister's party, 
um, you know, you would have them stepping on each other to say, it should be me, no, it should be me, because they would all be jockeying for position on the day after as well. So none of them would be, you know, favorably disposed to saying, let's all rally behind this candidate right now, in most cases, um, in the fear that, you know, he could actually step up after that and, you know, hold the reins of the party, and they would have passed up on that opportunity. Uh, you know, maybe there might be some sort of interim, you know, sort of hybrid situation where they found somebody who they could be believed confidently had no political future and would be doing this as a caretaker for a couple of months. And then, you know, maybe they could get behind a candidacy such as that. But, you know, we haven't had anybody actually step up to offer that as a as a possibility right yet either. So so it's it's not a it's not an obvious course of action right now. It's there, but you know, I wouldn't sign off on it so quickly. No, that's understandable. Great. Well, listen, Shalom, thank you very much indeed for sharing your analysis with us today. That was really, really useful and uh, fascinating to listen to. So thank you. Happy to be with you, Richard. Thank you very much.